Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, Jesus Goes Global, The Missionary Enterprise, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts 14, verses 1 to 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Boldness in Persecution. Matthew chapter 13 records Jesus' parable of the sower that went out to sow. And Jesus said the seed fell on four different kinds of soil. And one of those varieties of soil upon which the seed falls, it's the rocky soil. Initially, everything seems good. The seed penetrates the soil and the conditions are right to produce a harvest. But in truth, there's not enough soil, no depth, says Jesus. The soil is shallow because it lies on a rocky bottom. And when the hot days of summer come, the lack of soil produced a lack of moisture, the plant died. Jesus said that was a fitting image of what happened to some people. Initially, they believe, but when persecution arises on account of the gospel, their faith withers and dies. They're not deeply rooted into Christ. They, they prefer a trouble-free life, and they haven't deeply grasped the reality of the resurrection. Persecution is inevitable. If you've grasped the gospel, if you believe the gospel, if you said, look, I want to follow Jesus, well, you must then know that not everyone will greet that news with a hurrah or even a shrug of indifference. It will, in some, excite open hostility. Jesus said it would happen, and because of that, it should not surprise us when it does. It was Peter in 1 Peter 4.12 that said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Something strange isn't happening to you. Something expected is happening to you. The natural outcome of preaching the gospel and winning people to faith in Christ is that, first of all, you've got an enemy. Satan doesn't want his captives to be freed and brought to Jesus. He actually hates it. And second, he will incite others to oppose you. Very well, let's get on with our study of Acts. I'm reading Acts 14, 1 to 7. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. You know, in this series, I've been following Paul's first missionary journey. And he's begun in the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. And then he sailed north to the mainland. So as I explained earlier, the mainland is what we now call the coast of Turkey. You know, he's gone inland, he went north, and he had a very successful, albeit rocky ministry in Antioch in the province of Pisidia. From there, he had the option of taking one of two roads. And he chose the road that moved southeast, went on for about 145 kilometers, where he eventually would come to the city of Iconium. And Paul would have entered into the province of Galatia. And it was in the province of Galatia that he would visit three cities. Iconium would be the first. It would be followed by the city of Lystra and then on to the city of Derbe. These three cities, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, are the three cities that Paul will later address 
in his letter, the letter to the Galatians. But today we start with his first city of Galatia, the city of Iconium. Now, a little word about Iconium that I think is important in order to understand what happened here. Iconium was a Greek city, and it was resistant to Roman influence. It was a Roman colony, to be sure, but it wasn't governed like a Roman city. Iconium had an assembly of citizens as the form of government. And so you might remember that while Paul and Barnabas were on the island of Cyprus, they eventually came to the capital city of the island. That was the city of Paphos. And there you might remember they won a Roman proconsul to faith in Christ. And a proconsul, well, that's a Roman political administrator for a city or a region. But now in Iconium, the city is governed not by a proconsul, but by a citizen's assembly. It's very Greek and not Roman. As I've said, this fact becomes an essential fact in understanding what happens here. Well, very well. Paul and Barnabas have entered into Iconium, and by now, we're not going to be surprised by what they do. They enter the Jewish synagogue there, and they're invited to speak. And on this occasion, Luke, who's recording these events, doesn't tell us what Paul preached there. And, well, I've just got to assume that by now, the sermon that's described in Acts 13 would probably have been the very same sermon that he preached in the synagogue in Iconium. And then, just like what happened in Antioch, Luke tells us that after Paul had preached there, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, again, we have to notice that there were a good number of Gentiles, Greeks, who had become followers of the God of Abraham. They had come to believe that the Jewish scriptures were true and that it consisted of the word of God. Now, I've got to assume that these Gentiles were not converts to Judaism. They were God-fearers. In other words, they hadn't been circumcised and adhered to all the rules of dietary restrictions and so forth, but they had come to believe. Now comes the confusing bit. Verse 2 tells us that the unbelieving Jews stirred up a great number of people, poisoning their minds. Again, this is very much like what happened in Antioch. But in Pisidian Antioch, when the resultant persecution gained steam, Paul and Barnabas were immediately driven out not just out of the city, but out of the district. But according to verse 3 in our text today, things were very different in Iconium. Luke says that Paul and Barnabas, that is, after the city was stirred up against them, and yet they continued to remain in that city for a long time. So how is that even possible? Well, I think the answer to that question has to do with the way in which the city of Iconium was governed. Seems likely to me that when Luke tells us that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds, it must refer to the citizens' assembly, where prominent citizens would meet and conduct the business of the state. And so if I read the entire passage rightly, it seems, at least at this time, that the citizens' assembly was divided, and they didn't make a ruling against Paul and Barnabas, and that's the reason they remained in that city for a long time. Some would have argued that they've got to go, and others would have argued against it, and so they were allowed to remain. And you have to stop here and make application. See, it's true today that in some places on earth, allowance is made. So the preaching and teaching and discipling and baptizing of new believers, all that is allowed by the governing authorities. But even in those places, one should not assume that this allowance is without considerable opposition. In the Western world today, 
one hears of ever more calls to restrict the Christian message, and if not that, at least to restrict the opportunity of the church to win more people to faith in Christ. And so the culture is divided. Some want to give Christians all the freedom they want, and some are against it. And what should Christians do in such circumstances? Well, the answer has to be to learn from Paul's example. Notice verse 3 again. Given that things were undecided in the citizens' assembly, Paul and Barnabas remained and they spoke boldly. Now, Luke doesn't tell us whether or not Paul and Barnabas had been kicked out of the synagogue by this time, but I suspect they were. But the point I want to emphasize is the point Luke emphasizes. Paul and Barnabas, realizing their message was creating a great deal of opposition, don't make the decision to tone matters down or attempt to blunt the message to satisfy the opponents. Rather, they assume since in the immediate, since there's still time to preach the gospel, they go forward with all the energy they have. Notice, persecution doesn't make them timid. Persecution is an opportunity for them to show that their hope is not in this world, but in the resurrection. Opposition never means we tone the message down, never. Now, having said that, Luke adds that the Lord, and here he means the Lord Jesus, bore witness to the word of his grace by granting Paul and Barnabas the ability to do signs and wonders. He means they're doing miracles. But notice carefully how Luke describes it. The primary work is the work of preaching. Paul and Barnabas don't hold miracle services. Rather, they're preaching the grace of Jesus. They're preaching the gospel, the gospel of Jesus who gave his life for the sins of the lost and who rose from the dead, the miracles establish the word as true. Now, since Luke says that the Lord granted this, we should then assume that it was the Lord's decision whether or not miracles would be a part of their work in that city. Again, how important it is for us to notice that fact. For one, it was especially true in terms of the apostles. God gave them this ministry, but it can also be true for anyone today. See, even when there are miracles, the faithful evangelist, the faithful preacher, doesn't make miracles the focus of ministry. The focus must be Jesus, his gospel, the call to bring people to faith, come to Christ and be saved. The miracles, if Christ should grant them, are miracles meant only to authenticate the message. They never are the message. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. So here's the situation in Iconium. Many people come to Christ. 
Many unbelieving Jews have poisoned the minds of many Gentiles, both to the gospel as well as to Paul and Barnabas. But in this time, when they're still permitted to minister, Paul and Barnabas have been bold. Facing criticism and rancor, that doesn't deter them. It doesn't intimidate them. It doesn't make them ashamed of Christ. Luke then tells us what happened next, and here I'm rereading verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now, please allow me, but I'm about to take us on a bit of a rabbit trail. You'll notice the passage says some sided with the apostles. Now, the only people in the city were Paul and Barnabas, and since Luke uses the word apostles in the plural, are we to understand that Luke believes that not only was Paul an apostle, but he thinks Barnabas was one as well? And if that's the case, well, just how many apostles are there? And furthermore, to compound this question, Luke actually says it twice. So if you go ahead to Acts 14, verse 14, while in the ministry in the city of Lystra, there Luke says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, and so forth. So you can see here quite plainly, Luke calls both Barnabas and Paul apostles. And let me help you to see just how problematic that is. See, up till now, Luke has used the term apostles to describe the 12, that is, those chosen by Jesus during his ministry, and those who have had authority given to them by Jesus himself to speak on his behalf and to give leadership to the universal church. So as an example, Acts 8 verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except whom? The apostles. So it's clear Luke means the twelve. And this idea that the apostles are not an ever-expanding number, well, that's deeply rooted in Scripture. Listen to the words of Ephesians 2 verse 20, in which we learn that the church, the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, now, just like any house, any building, you only lay down the foundation once and after that, everyone else just builds on it. The foundation is laid once for all. The building on that foundation goes on until this day. And Luke affirms that idea. Right from the start, says Luke, well, Acts 2.42, the church devotes itself to the teaching of the apostles. And the apostles are those chosen by Jesus and entrusted to give the authoritative account of the life of Jesus and what that means. Now, I won't time to explain fully you know, why it is that Paul became an apostle, but a brief explanation is in order. 1 Corinthians 9.1, Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That is to say, Paul insists that he's an apostle because he was an eyewitness of Jesus. So in this case, he means that he was abnormally born. And here, he's referring to his unique case in which the risen Jesus not only appeared to him at Damascus, but he continued to mentor him and give him the message he was to preach. But let's get back to Luke's description of what happened at Iconium. The city is divided. Some sided with the unbelieving Jews, and some, here it is, with the apostles. So did Luke believe that Barnabas was now an apostle? And if he did, did Luke then believe that the number of the apostles was an ever-expanding number? And if that's so, what exactly do we mean by an apostle? And here's where it gets interesting. In Acts 4, verse 36, Luke there makes a clear distinction between Barnabas and the apostles. He says it was the apostles who changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas. But Luke never says that therefore Barnabas was numbered among the apostles. Again, how is it 
that Luke would call Barnabas an apostle. Now, I think the answer has everything in the world to do with how Luke uses the term apostle. You know, it's a Greek word, and it simply means one who is sent. The apostles, in the formal sense of the word, are those 12 that were directly sent out by Jesus. But Luke can use the term apostle to speak of the ones who are sent out, not directly by Jesus, but sent out from a local church. And in that sense, Luke is not using the term apostle in its formal sense. He's using it in a more informal sense. He means that Paul and Barnabas were sent out from the church in Antioch in Syria. But why use the word at all? It seems confusing. I think Luke uses it here to make it clear that these men were doing what they were doing in Iconium because they had been sent out from the church. And Luke is using the term here to help us understand that some in the city of Iconium wanted Paul and Barnabas to stop preaching, but the church to which these men belonged had sent them out to preach. And so, at least that's how I understand it, this is a question of authority. Who has the authority to tell Barnabas and Paul to either continue to speak about Christ or not? And the answer is, these men are sent out from the church. And that speaks about the authority of the church today, the authority that Christ has invested into his church. When a church ordains or commissions a preacher or a missionary or a teacher or an evangelist, neither the state or a local government or any governing body has authority over that local church's commission. Paul and Barnabas are apostles of the church in Syrian Antioch. They're not men commissioned by themselves. Rather, they were sent out by a church under the authority of Christ. And as the Holy Spirit spoke to that church, send out Paul and Barnabas to preach, that's what these men were doing. Now, and this is so important, saying things the way I've just said them doesn't preclude the power of the government. And since we've been talking about persecution, we need to recognize that even while all Christians who are persecuted will face a measure of resistance and even persecution, we're not called upon to be persecuted. If we're persecuted, we will bear up under it. But if we can avoid the persecution, we should do it. And so we come to verses 5 to 7. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and of the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. See, the events in these verses seem to indicate that a lawless mob was formed. Remember, there's a division among the people. Some side with the unbelieving Jewish members of the synagogue, some side with the apostles. And as I've said, the citizens' assembly seems to be divided as well so that no official action is taken, leaving Paul and Barnabas freedom to carry on their ministry for some time. Now, the Greek word for attempt, that is, an attempt was made to mistreat them, well, it comes from a Greek word that suggests impulsiveness or an action not controlled by reason. It means, if I understand Luke rightly here, that these Gentiles and Jews notice how Paul and Barnabas carry on boldly, and so they decide to take matters into their own hands. They'd either do them great harm or they'd stone them to death. And the response of Paul and Barnabas is not to hang around and let it happen. Again, whenever believers can take action to stop persecution, well, we should take that action. And in this case, it meant that Paul and Barnabas, having enjoyed a considerable freedom where freedom had been given, are now in a position that they must flee. 
Luke says they fled to Lystra and Derbe, which were cities in the region of Lyconia. The Lyconian district was a province in Galatia, but it was a different district than was a part of the city of Iconia. So how far did they go? Well, Lystra is 32 kilometers southeast, and Derby is still another 93 kilometers down the road. And in a world where most people walk, well, it's really quite a long way away. In other words, the two men fled for their lives. And this is key. Luke said that when we come to a new place, they continue to preach the gospel. In other words, these men are determined that they would preach wherever the Holy Spirit opened a door for preaching the gospel. If one door was shut, they would simply go somewhere else. And again, we're reminded that that things do change. Persecution and a violent reaction to the gospel, that's actually a common phenomenon. But instead of despairing, instead of saying, oh God, you know, how can you allow that to happen? You'll notice that Paul and Barnabas have nothing of that attitude. You know, it's often, as you know, a phenomenon that happens in our thinking. You know, when things get rough, we complain, we question God's wisdom. But Paul and Barnabas don't. And after we get a sense of God's wisdom is greater than ours, and after we get a sense that evil men really do exist, well, then maybe we should follow their example to simply open our eyes and say, well, then God, if this door is closed, what door do you have for me next? And then regardless of the hardships that we faced in the past, we simply move on to the next area of ministry that the Lord opens up for us. Boldness in persecution not only means we face the threats with boldness, but if we're driven from one place to another, we don't stop preaching the gospel. May we be found faithful wherever the Lord opens a door for us. Thanks, John. You know, I think it's clear that Christians should expect to be persecuted. But even in persecution, do we not need to continue to be steadfast? You know, I mean, obviously, we have to be faithful unto the end. Christ demands it of us, and the Scripture constantly calls us to that. I mean, we are not to turn our back to the plow. No matter what the cost is, we have to consider that Christ in his gospel is worth anything that this world has to offer. So if it's a question of you know, the, the greatest riches, pleasures, uh, fame, anything that this world has to offer as opposed to Christ. We choose Christ and his resurrection. This world is but a moment. Christ is eternal. And so we would gladly, for the sake of Christ, forego all things. And that means that our faithfulness carries on for a lifetime. We persevere unto the end. That is required of us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, the missionary enterprise right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people. And your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program. So we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. 
For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.